Welcome back to Brain Minds. I started college three weeks ago, and in that time I've learned a few things, mostly about the peculiar behavior of 18-year-old mean girls. They're like pigeons. They have too much confidence for their own good, they all look the same, and they will shit on you at any given opportunity. I was walking to my drafting class when I noticed three girls looking me up and down, and then I heard them talking about my clothes amongst one another. My appearance was completely unremarkable, so I'm unsure why they felt the need to comment. The most uncomfortable part was when I made eye contact with the one actively talking about my appearance, and she just kept on going. Those birds picked me apart like a hot dog bun dropped in Central Park. I'm old now, so it doesn't really bother me anymore. I just hope they don't pick on the wrong kid and find themselves singing Pearl Jam. Hear a me spoken yesterday. <laughs> I can't do this. Give me some snaps though, I feel like I captured Eddie Vedder's voice pretty well. But anyway, let's get into the meat and taters of this episode. Before I read you this week's short story, I have a true story for you that I heard from the lady herself. Well, maybe not from the lady herself, but from her hospice nurse, which is close enough. She's been long dead for about 15 years now and was 98 when she passed away. I can't remember her name, so I suppose the mystery will die with me and the person who spilled the beans to me. But for all intents and purposes, I'll call her Nancy. When Nancy was in her early 20s, she married a truck driver who spent his off nights drinking and acting a fool. She stayed with him despite his alcoholism and abusive behavior. One day, she caught him cheating, and that was the catalyst that drove her to exact a plan of revenge that would ultimately end his life. On his last morning alive, Nancy cooked him a lavish breakfast and kissed him goodbye. What he didn't know was that she had crushed sleeping pills into his food. Due to lack of regulations and worker exploitation in the 60s and 70s, it wasn't uncommon for truckers to die on the road from exhaustion-related wrecks. Her husband inevitably fell asleep at the wheel and died in the crash. No autopsy was done, and Nancy went on to live her life in peace and eventually found the love of her life, whom she was with until she took her last dying breath. She said she never meant for him to crash and die, only to make him uncomfortable and sleepy at work. But I don't know if I believe her. Do you? I have a lounge on Reddit where we can talk about it if you want to share a similar story or talk about this one. Do join me if you feel so inclined. Hold on to your butts, boyos. It's story time. I've named this one Forget-Me-Not. Jack patted his suit jacket up and down, turned out every damn pocket, and spilled an embarrassing amount of lint onto the marble bank floors. The teller clacked a peppermint around in her mouth with a blasé look as Jack did his silly pocket-padding dance. With a hint of desperation in his brow, he asked, Miss Lottie, can I borrow a pen? Lottie reached into the teller cup, withdrew a pen with her long, dusty pink nails, and presented it to Jack with a jerking nod. Oh, thank you, ma'am, he said graciously as he scribbled his John Hancock on the back of a crumpled check. Mm-hmm. Cash or deposit, Lottie grumbled. Cash, please. How's the old man? Jack asked, disinterested as he handed the check over for her to clear. He's fine. Doing a lot better after his surgeries. Lottie stamped the check, licked her blackened thumb, and tendered his fare to him. That's good, that's good. Maybe I'll come by and see him since he hasn't been able to drop by coffee with the fellas at Lou's Cafe. Thank you, Miss Lottie. Jack hastily stuffed the cash in his billfold and fled like an armed robber out of the revolving door. Lottie shoved her cheetah cat eyeglasses back in place. Bye, Jack. I'm swell too. Nice talking to you. And you stole my damn pin, you jackass, Lottie ground out. 
Jack arrived at the electric company in a nick of time. He was late on his payment, so the electric company had to cut his power earlier in the day. His wife was not happy with him for letting it slip through the cracks, and he was sure that if he hadn't made it in time to resolve it before the weekend, he'd return home to a stack of divorce papers. The receptionist counted Jack's cash and presented him with a receipt to sign. He patted his pockets, which produced a pin that wasn't his. He lawed his head back to curse at the ceiling, then he signed his name with Lottie's pin. Jack had known Lottie for a long time. She was an older woman, late 50s, early 60s, very catty. She hated having her pen stolen and her time wasted, and she always smelled like a musty cucumber lightly dusted in Estee Lauder. Jack rapped on Lottie and Bill's door, bit his cheek, fiddled about in his pocket with the stolen pen, and waited patiently. The front door opened moments later. Lottie stood in the doorway behind the screen in her casual clothes and stared at Jack. Hey Lottie, I accidentally stole your pen so I came to give it back and I figured I'd drop by and see how Bill's doing anyway. The smell of pungent, rotting flesh wafted through the screen door. It was an offensive odor, but what would be even more offensive, Jack thought, would be to pull a face. Lottie unlatched the screen door and stepped aside for Jack to come inside. He took his coat off and hugged it on the hook next to the door. Here's your pen, hope you didn't miss it too much, Jack faked a smile. Oh lord, Lottie rolled her eyes and shuffled into the kitchen to put the pin in her scuffed black purse. Bill's in here having his supper. He's not real responsive these days, but if you want to try to get him to talk, be my guest. Jack entered the kitchen, sat at the head of the table, could barely be considered a man. Bill was bloated to twice his size and was visibly in active decay at the dinner table. A small pool of putrefaction puddled on the linoleum beneath the wooden chair he'd have been positioned. She sat beside her dead husband nonchalantly and busied herself with the daily paper Sudoku puzzle. When I'm finished, you can read the peanuts if you want. Jack wasn't sure if she was talking to him or her dead husband. Oh, don't you whine, sweetheart. You're gonna be just fine. Lottie set her Sudoku down and tended to the corpse of a husband. She scooped some mashed potatoes from his plate and brought them to his mouth. You need your energy, Bill. Lottie couldn't get the spoon in Bill's mouth, so she let it clatter to the floor and used both her hands to pry his jaws apart. Holding the corpse's mouth open with one hand, she crammed potatoes in with the other, licked her fingers, then sat back down to work on her Sudoku puzzle. Jack backed out of the kitchen. Going so soon? Lottie looked up at him and pushed her glasses up her nose. Don't be rude. Bill hasn't had any visitors since his surgery. Oh, Miss Lottie, I really ought to get home to the family. Jack tried hard to replace his bewilderment with a forced smile. Well, if you really must leave, I won't stop you. But as much as I'd hate to ask, could you please help me move some boxes to the carport? Bill hasn't been able to do much in his condition. She patted the corpse on the hands sweetly. Lottie disappeared down the darkened hallway through a swinging blue door with a diamond window. He followed reluctantly behind her. Jack's nails bit into his palms as he traversed the dark hallway. Lottie peeked out from an open room with a dim light with a bizarre smile on her face and vanished once again. Jack's stomach twisted into knots when he reached the threshold. Lottie stood behind a bloodied pastel salon chair aged with tobacco tar and rogue chemicals. Her nails dug into the side of the cheap pleather as she glared at Jack. What did you do to Bill? That bonehead kept forgetting to take the goddamn trash out. So I fixed him. 
and I'm gonna fix you too. You incompetent nitwit! Lottie pulled an ice pick from the aluminum instrument tray and lunged toward Jack. The pick punctured his chest and slipped from Lottie's hand. Jack bolted from the room. His ragged cough splattered Lottie's Sudoku with blood. She slammed into the hallway chest of drawers and laughed maniacally. Forgetful little boy. I'll make sure you never forget again. <laughs> Jack burst through the screen door and fell off the curb into the street. He could hear Lottie's unhinged laughter echoing from the house. Jesus Christ, Jack! Jack looked toward the voice. It was his boss, Mr. Erie. I almost ran over you. What the hell were you doing in the middle of the- Christ, what the hell happened to you? Mr. Erie exclaimed as he walked around the hood of the cutlass. Jack sputtered as he tried to tell Mr. Erie, but his lungs were too full of blood. Lottie peeked her head out of the door, grinning ear to ear at Jack, giggled, and then slammed the door. Mr. Erie put an arm around Jack and pulled him into the Oldsmobile. God damn it, Jack, you're getting blood all over my sheets. Mr. Erie dialed the police station from his bag phone as he drove Jack to Memorial Sherman. The next morning, Mr. Erie dropped by to check on Jack and bring in the paper. I expect you back to work on Monday. Don't think because you almost died you get to take a bunch of time off, Mr. Erie scolded jokingly. Anyway, thought you might want to read this. Mr. Erie dropped the paper on Jack's bed tray and walked out mumbling something about his damn seats. Jack picked the paper up and read the headline. Dementia or demon, elderly woman arrested for lobotomizing husband over household chores. Jack, you're awake! Margie hastened to Jack's side and placed a hand on his forehead. How are you feeling? Jack gazed into his wife's concerned eyes, squeezed her hand, and whispered, For starters, I'm less forgetful now. They laughed and laughed and laughed some more, but Jack knew deep down he'd never forget to pay the electricity on time again. With today's theme being Meridicide, I've compiled a list of top five noteworthy cases on the subject. Number one on my list is Lydia Sherman. When Horatio Sherman took sick after returning home from a week-long drunken spree, he said it was just one of his old spells. His wife Lydia agreed and dosed him with brandy as usual, but Horatio's doctor, who had treated his alcohol-induced spells before, was suspicious this time. Horatio died two days later, and the doctor ordered a post-mortem examination which revealed the cause of death to be arsenic poisoning. When it was further learned that Lydia Sherman's first two husbands and seven of her children had all died of arsenic poisoning as well, she was called the Arch Murderess of Connecticut. Number two on my list is Mary Sheedy. The evening of January 11, 1891, John Sheedy stepped out of the front door of his Lincoln, Nebraska home and was attacked by a man charging from the shadows. Sheedy was struck three times on the side of the head with a leather-covered steel cane. A powerful but controversial man, John Sheedy owned an illegal gambling casino and had enemies on both sides of the law. But when it was learned that the assailant may have been paid by Sheedy's wife who delivered the death blow herself by poisoning his coffee, the unfolding tale of adultery, conspiracy, extortion, and murder threatened to undermine the social decorum and moral order of Lincoln. Number three on my list is Frankie Silver. Charlie and Frankie Silver were the ideal young married couple. He was strong and handsome, she was kind and beautiful. 
They lived an idyllic life with their baby daughter in a little cabin in the woods of Burke County, North Carolina. But things changed quickly when Frankie learned that Charlie had been seeing other women. Allegedly, one night in December 1831, she methodically and brutally murdered Charlie in his sleep. The reality is even darker. Frankie had endured physical abuse from Charlie throughout their marriage until on that December night, she fought back to save her own life. Frankie Silver's subsequent execution was a tragic miscarriage of justice. Number four on my list is Emma Cunningham. The townhouse at 31 Bond Street was, to all appearance, a model of staid middle-class Manhattan decorum. In 1857, it was a boarding house run by Mrs. Emma Cunningham with the dental office of Dr. Harvey Burdell on the second floor. But after Dr. Burdell was found in his office strangled and stabbed 15 times, 31 Bond Street was shown for what it was, a hotbed of greed, lust, intrigue, and depravity. If you're interested in hearing a more in-depth review of each of these historical murders, let me know on Reddit. I might do a mini-series on TikTok about each of them. I don't know yet. Now, for the woman of the hour, this might be the most gruesome Marticide I've read about. So, my creep for the day is Catherine Mary Knight, the first Australian woman to be sentenced to life imprisonment without parole. I've watched my fair share of true crime, but I had never heard of Catherine before. Maybe it's because I live in the United States and we have plenty of murderers here to talk about without investigating other countries' fucked up murder registries. As with all murderers and serial killers, Catherine had a tragic upbringing. She was born an illegitimate child, a product of an affair between her mother, Barbara Ruffin, and her father, Ken Knight, in the small conservative town of Tenterfield, Australia in 1955. Her father was a violent alcoholic who sexually abused her mother multiple times a day. Catherine claimed she was also sexually assaulted by several family members until the age of 11. Knight became the school bully in her tween years, oftentimes targeting the younger children. She quit school at 15 and at the age of 16 landed what she considered her dream job at a slaughterhouse as a field dresser. Just in case you don't know what a field dresser is, it's the person who disembowels animals at meat processing centers. While working in the slaughterhouse, Knight met her first husband, David Kellett. David was just like her father, a violent alcoholic. In 1974, Catherine convinced David to marry her. On their wedding night, David fell asleep after three rounds of drunken sex. This pissed Knight off, so she started choking the son of a bitch. Luckily, he managed to fight her off before she strangled him to death. Kellett fucked around on night, which she found out about. As a way to retaliate, she left their two-month-old baby on the train tracks and threatened a bunch of townsfolk with an axe, Lizzie Borden style. Witnesses recalled seeing her mishandling her other children as well. The nurses in the institution that she was boarded in reported that she claimed to want to kill Kellett's mechanic for fixing his car, because he could leave her if he had a mode of transportation. I am rolling my eyes so hard right now. They actually released her, and Kellett took her crazy ass back. It gets worse. Way worse. Hold on to your butts again. This one is gonna sting. In 1986, Catherine started dating a minor, David Saunders. This relationship went south as quickly as the last one. Catherine slit the throat of David's two-month-old puppy in front of him just to show him her gall. Pause. I would have killed that bitch right then and there. I mean, who, who would fucking allow that? Anyway, <laughs> I gotta move on. Of course, he hadn't had enough of crazy Catherine yet. He decided to procreate with her. 
Great idea, man. <laughs> what do you do if someone kills your dog? Well, procreate with them, of course. No? Oh. Well, that's what dear old David did, fucking dummy. Shortly after the birth of their daughter, he left because she tried to murk him with a pair of scissors. Catherine went on to have another baby with a dude named John Chillingworth. Man, I'm really not getting the appeal. She looks like a red-headed Meat Canyon illustration of Chucky. Body built like a goddamn extraterrestrial cockroach from Men in Black. And she murders puppies and is the embodiment of every fucking red flag known to man. <laughs> John Chillingworth ended up leaving Catherine because she cheated on him with John Charles Thomas Price. The new John and Miss Misery started a relationship after the old John dumped her wretched ass and everything was going smoothly. Allegedly. They moved in together in 1995 and when she insisted they get married, he declined. This pissed her off again, which caused her to become a terrorist. Again. She got Price fired from his job, so he kicked her ass out, but a few months later he took her back. I want to pull my fucking hair out. According to friends and neighbors, Knight's violence escalated. In February 2000, Catherine tried to stab Thomas Price in the chest. He took out a restraining order against her at an attempt to keep himself and his family safe. And so here's where it gets convoluted to me because there's a gap in the story. Somehow they end up back together, but I didn't find anything reading on how that happened because it went from him having a restraining order to her killing him. So sorry, spoiler alert, let's just move on. <laughs> So, Catherine Knight knows what's up when it comes to girl dinner, because on February 19th, 2000, John Charles Thomas Price came home from work and completed his usual routine before going to bed at 11pm. Knight came home shortly after, she made dinner, woke Price up to fool around, and then Price went back to bed. After he'd gone to sleep, Catherine took a butcher knife from next to her bed and stabbed Price 37 times. He woke up during the assault but wasn't able to fight her off. Knight dragged his dead body downstairs and hung him from a meat hook in the living room. She proceeded to decapitate him and cut his body into bite-sized pieces to cook in a dish with pumpkin, beets, zucchini, cabbage, squash, and gravy. Yum! She then made a dish for herself, but discarded half of it. The crime scene suggested she couldn't stomach her meal of man meat. She then popped a bunch of pills and passed out next to the mutilated corpse. Price warned his co-workers that if he no-called, no-showed, that they should call the police, because he was afraid that Knight might kill him someday. When he didn't show at work the next day, they did, as he warned and called the police. The police arrived to find the gruesome crime scene and an incapacitated Catherine. When she awoke, she claimed to have no memory of the calamity. The police found Price's head boiling in a pot of vegetables on the stove and on the table. They discovered two plates of man stew labeled with the names of his children. It was her intention to feed the girls their own father's flesh. And thus, Catherine Knight became the first woman in Australian history to receive a life sentence without parole. She has made many attempts to appeal her sentence, but is denied almost immediately every time. Rightfully so. After reading about this vile woman, it's a wonder how she wasn't imprisoned sooner. It probably has something to do with men not wanting to report domestic violence out of embarrassment or a fear of not being believed, which could result in retaliation from their partner. I mean, what do you think could have prevented the senseless killing of John Price? Did the police just not do anything because she was a woman? You, sh you guys 
Gotta get on Reddit and let me know, because that shit is crazy. I was doing research about female cryptids, and I found the perfect one. We've all heard about the lady in white, but have you heard about the lady in red? A lady in red, or red lady, is the ghost of a scorned woman. According to legend, the red lady is attributed to a jilted lover or prostitute killed in a fit of passion. In all cases, this entity appears in a blood-red dress and has a friendly disposition. One that picked my interest in particular is an apparition that haunts the halls of Huntingdon College in Montgomery, Alabama. What once used to be a benevolent lady in red who softly traversed the residence halls has morphed into a resentful entity who strikes fear into the hearts of those she calls upon. The following account was written by Strange Alabama by Beverly Kreider in 2012. The story began when Huntington College was located in Tuskegee, where the school was chartered and established as Tuskegee Women's College in 1854. One night, after lights out, the girls on the upper floor of the residence hall, Sky Alley, noticed a glowing red light emerging through the cracks under their doors. The curious dorm residents peeked from their doorways to witness an ethereal lady in an exquisite red gown, carrying a red parasol gliding up and down the corridor. The apparition radiated a red light and seemed oblivious to the onlookers. She maintained a forward stare and continued her patrol of the hallway until daybreak. The terrified students were never again quite at ease as night fell each evening, never sure if the ghost would return. She never did and there was never any satisfactory explanation for her appearance. When the campus was relocated to Montgomery in 1910, the school was renamed the Woman's College of Alabama. The Red Lady was a thing of the past, left behind with the building she haunted in Tuskegee. Until, that is, a young girl called Martha by some or Margaret by others moved to the campus. Martha was born to a wealthy family in New York. Her parents were both natives of Alabama, and Martha's father left specific instructions in his will that Martha was to attend his mother's alma mater of Huntington, which had been located in Tuskegee at the time. So while she did not want to leave her New York home, Martha complied with the wishes of her father, feeling she had no other choice. Martha's arrival on campus drew immediate notice from her fellow classmates, as she had a particular fondness for the color red which she displayed proudly in everything from her choice of clothing to the decor in her fourth floor room in Pratt Hall. Her bedspread, her rug, even her accessories were all red. Always an outsider on campus, Martha did not make friends easily. Some might even say she actively discouraged her classmates whenever they attempted to befriend her. She was, after all, a New Yorker at heart, and she was not ready to call Alabama home. She also was a shy girl, and some, having heard she was wealthy, could have easily mistaken her shyness for disdain. So, whatever the reason, she was a very unhappy girl with no friends on campus. Her sullen, cool demeanor made it hard for her to keep roommates. Her gloom seemed to permeate the room, dissuading anyone with an inclination to stay. As the weeks passed, and no roommate for Martha could be found, the president of Pratt Hall agreed to give it a try. After a concerted effort to befriend the lonely girl, she too was overwhelmed by the morose atmosphere and decided to leave before she too became despondent. Martha entered the room just as the president was preparing to leave. 
Overcome by the rejection of the only friend she believed she had on campus, Martha bitterly warned her that she would regret her decision to move out. Soon, no one on Pratt Hall could stand to be in the same room with Martha. Her presence seemed to cast a chill upon the room, and anyone there would soon find an excuse to leave. Feeling alienated, Martha retreated to her room, cloaking herself in her red bedspread as if to shut out the rest of the world. The intense isolation seemed to drive Martha from the melancholy to the bizarre. She began roaming the dormitory hall after lights out, randomly opening doors of her hallmates casting blank stares into their rooms and patrolling the halls as if in a trance. One evening, after Martha had failed to attend any of her classes and had not been seen at any meals, her former roommate and dorm president decided to go check on her. As she neared the girl's room at the end of the corridor, she noticed a strange red glow emanating from Martha's transom. Upon opening the door, she found Martha, dressed in a red robe and cloaked in her red bedspread, lying on the floor in a pool of blood. Martha had slashed her wrists. To this day, it is said that Martha remains on the fourth floor of Pratt Hall. Generations of Huntingdon students have claimed to have witnessed the ghostly red lady making her way up and down the hall. Students claim that on the anniversary of Martha's death, the spooky activities seem to increase. Her ghost always appears on that night, and the strange red light glows from her former room, although the building is no longer a dormitory. Have you ever been visited by a lady in red? Let me know on Reddit, or you can email, DM, or whatever suits your fancy. Thank you for tuning into today's episode of Brain Mites. I'm always open for suggestions, so please let me know if there's anything you want to hear about on a future episode. And that's all I got for you. Bye!